So tomorrow, myself and Venerable Anuttara travel to Thailand for the annual meeting of the Lumpocha Sangha at Wabapong. Even though it might not sound immediately inspiring, just uh, going for a meeting. There's some advantages when the Sangha come together from around Thailand, around the globe, in Wapapong, the monastery that Lumpur Cha founded. For those who have spent at least some time living there, training there, then obviously returning can bring up a lot of very wholesome, skillful memories. Even for those who didn't train with Lumpur Cha, the atmosphere of peace, uh, the reverence and respect of the Sangha and laity when they come together on these occasions is something I think most people can appreciate. So it's almost a bit like a pilgrimage going back to the place where Lumpur Cha himself practiced in the last half of his life. A place where his relics are enshrined in the chedi. So it can be a place not only for meeting and discussion, it can be a place where we actually go and practice. Most people find sitting meditation either in the hall or in the chedi, they often find that the mind become, gathers together more easily. They gain some piti and sukha, maybe even go into a state of samadhi for a longer or shorter period. Something similar to when Buddhists go on pilgrimage to India, to Bodhgaya, even though it's a long time since the Buddha entered Parinibbana, there's a certain atmosphere there that just seems to bring up a deeper sense of faith sometimes and people often find they have pity and sukha, joy, happiness arising, even if they're tired or the place is busy. So again, these meetings are a time to reflect on our life as a samana. <clears throat> the brahmacharya, or what we sometimes call the bhikkhu system of training. Lumpur Cha used the samana sanya as a teaching over and over again, because it provides a useful framework for 
us as we are training in the Vinaya, in the Dhamma. We are summoners. We've left the lay life, the home life for the forest, shaven our heads, put on the robes. And as human beings, we can use concepts, conventions and ideas to help train ourselves, develop ourselves, even though we know ultimately we're going beyond the conventions and the concepts. The practical reality is we need to use them skillfully. So the concept of a samana, something we try to bring up over and over again to help shape our thinking, our views, and from that our behavior, the way we relate to others and relate to the world. It's a skillful means. Even the Buddha himself as a bodhisattva relied on the spark of inspiration arising, seeing the samana, the fourth of the Devaduta (coughs) messengers. Having considered the suffering of life, birth, old age, sickness and death. Then to see a samana walking peacefully through town gave that signal that there is a way out of suffering. Just ignited some some brightness in his heart and gave him some direction. That is one of our roles that we play in society to remind people of the spiritual path even without a word being spoken the presence of a samana can do that the more effort we put into the training learning the Vinaya learning to practice sense restraint bring up mindfulness learn the Dhamma and then reflect on the Dhamma. And the more this is deepening that sense of the Samana, the more effective it will be, the lifestyle that we follow will be in both training our own hearts, but also as a support and a guidance to others, other beings, other people. Lumpur Cha often said the Samana is one who sees danger in samsara. There's some instinctive awareness that samsara is endless, cyclical birth and death, happiness and suffering, and more birth, more, more death, more happiness, more suffering. It's just endless. And we've gone forth with some aspiration to put an end to it through transcending it through the practice, using the Samana's life and the bhikkhu's system of training. So it's a reflection one can keep bringing up, coming back to every day, using 
say this, reminders from the suttas, the Vinaya, say the reflections, ten reflections of a bhikkhu, or the Awada Patimoka. There's different teachings that help shape the picture, the sanya of the samana. <coughs> one who is not accumulating or seeking to accumulate anymore. We've given up that. So we're dependent on arms, learning to live modestly. You know, the Buddha reminded us that we should practice to be heirs of the Buddha in terms of the Dhamma that the Buddha realized, not to be heirs of the Buddha in terms of his renown, or the gains that he offered and received. A samana is one who is not out to accumulate, so we try to live simply, modestly, in terms of the requisites we use, not to be a burden on the laity, to be more like the the bee that just takes a little bit of pollen and moves on without damaging the flower. The seminar is one who's harmless, one who doesn't insult through speech, doesn't physically harm others, doesn't oppress or bully others. Seminar is really synonymous with harmlessness. So just to see a samana, there's that sense of safety and security, which is often lacking in society. People don't know where to turn to be, feel really safe. But once they understand what a samana is, they can trust that a samana is one who is harmless and reminds others to practice harmlessness by giving out security, safety through non-violence, non-oppression of others. You make just that much makes a huge amount of good karma, wholesome karma for ourselves and provides a very valuable quality in this world which is sometimes in short supply. If you practice your Sila sincerely, the Vinaya, then as a samana, you're providing safety and security to immeasurable numbers of people, animals, beings, those we can see, those we can't see. All of those beings benefit from our harmlessness, our restraint. And even if we still feel we're beginners in the practice and we've got lots of karmic accumulations and lots of mental defilements affecting us. <clears throat> as long as we keep the Vinaya and we maintain that harmlessness of the Samana, all beings everywhere are benefiting from what we do. So the karma is that powerful. Obviously it's not to be a cause for conceit or 
pride to arise, but nevertheless, it's something to reflect on, the development of compassion, sympathy, understanding for others as we train our own minds. So the samana is one who symbolizes harmlessness, modesty, moderation, restraint. The one, the picture of the samana that Numpo Cha used to bring up over and over again, Venerable Asaji, one of the five original enlightened disciples of the Buddha, just walking quietly on their arms round through the town. And Upatisa, to be, soon to be Venerable Sariputta, seeing him, just instantly recognizing something in the way Asaji was walking, composed, mindful, restrained could tell that this is somebody who has trained, has realized the Dhamma, and must also have a good teacher. It's something that's known throughout Thailand about monks in the Sangha of Lumpur Cha. Maybe as the Sangha expands and time passes, that might change, but historically, the Sangha of Lumpur Cha has always been known for restraint, strict adherence to the Vinaya, a sort of peaceful practice of moderation, frugality, and so on. In the Buddhist community in Thailand, that's quite well known. And as the Sangha expands around the world, it's also becoming known around the world. Again, this can be a great source of inspiration to Buddhists and even non-Buddhists to know that there are people practicing like this sincerely in maintaining the samana form. But obviously the goal is for turning attention inwards to really train the mind in train the, the mind in sila samadhi panya but using the recollection of samana qualities of a samana just as a vehicle to bring up mindfulness and give us some values and guidelines to help us in our practice you know, the decisions we make are they coming, are they rooted in greed, anger, delusion, different forms of defilement, which obviously take us away from the, the samana sanya? Or are we curbing our defiled behavior, mental behavior, restraining it so at least it's not coming out in our speech and our actions? You know, every day we can make those decisions bringing up mindfulness and reflecting on what we're doing, where we're going, how we're behaving. As we train the question about how 
strict we should be, how much we should attach to the Vinaya, to the training, how much we should let go, that always comes up. And that's something we can, you might say, it's, can come up, keep coming up, can be under, under review. There's no one thing that is right necessarily because as we practice at different times, we'll, our training will require different qualities and emphasize different things. But we have certain guidelines. Again, the samana is one who treads the middle way. So neither the way of sensual indulgence, karma sukhali, karna yoga, or self, self-harm, extreme asceticism, atakilamatana yoga. But within those two boundaries, there's a lot of room for um, variation between bhikkhus, say, and even in one's own practice, different periods, we, we can experiment. So sometimes we are stricter, sometimes we are practicing on a more modest level, you might say. But we have these two boundaries that are like the, the boundaries of the samana life. That when you step over them, you're clearly not acting or being like a samana. Mentally, if it comes up, you know, the intentions to break the vinaya, well, you have to accept that will happen because we've lived as lay people and haven't trained as samanas for part of our lives. The important thing is developing the right view and the wisdom how to deal with our own kilesas so that they're not feeding more kilesas, more delusion, more suffering. So we have to have a certain kindness and compassion to ourselves as we practice and we can accept when we do fall into states, mental states based on the defilements not to be so aggressive towards ourselves that we harm ourselves or so unforgiving or to feel guilty. But on the other hand, not to indulge to the point where we're becoming shameless either. So to develop a wise attitude to the states of mind that come up and if we do break the vinaya, well, once we become mindful of it, to accept Honestly, sometimes we make mistakes, usually very minor things, and just re-establish mindfulness and the determination to keep, keep the training. And when we notice hindrances arising in med meditation, to accept that and to bring up the mindfulness and as much equanimity as we can, and ultimately, defilements, mental defilements, which <clears throat> you might say take us away from the qualities of a samana. And these defilements are not a person, a being. And that's part of a reflection. They're not self. So part of the perception of the samana is also the perception of not self. So the samana may have defilements arising but they're treated correctly with wisdom, with the right view. They're not self. 
because they're not self or they can be abandoned. And their conditions of mind have come up through ignorance and past karma. But now we're learning to treat them well, treat them in the correct way and abandon them, see them for what they are. They're not self, not to take them personally and not to take the suffering that we experience personally. So hand in hand with the samana sanya and the perception of being a samana, we have the framework of the Four Noble Truths. Again, so synonymous with being a samana is using the Four Noble Truths to reflect on our experience. There is suffering, its cause, there's the end of suffering and there's the path leading to the end of suffering. So our aim is to get to the point where the mind sees suffering as suffering with equanimity, learning from it rather than indulging it or running away from it or getting upset by it. Again, this may be one of the more defining aspects of the Samana life, is one who can bear with the suffering of life, you know, the normal suffering of life, you might say. The, the pains, the discomforts that come up, aches and pains, just sitting, walking, eating one meal a day, the heat, the cold, all the different experiences, normal experiences we have, yeah, the samana is one who has the, the patience, the mindfulness and the equanimity to deal with all that so that they can reflect and see that suffering is just suffering without taking it personally and making a big story out of it. You say the way of the world now is to make a, a story, a drama out of everything. The way of the samana is the opposite. The way of the samana is to develop a sense of detached awareness. So maybe experiencing some physical pain or some unpleasant mental states, but not to lose awareness of being a samana. So to treat it with forbearance, patience and mindfulness and ultimately wisdom, seeing it's not self, it's not a person. It's just a mental state arising, passing. It's just a, a feeling aches and pains, feelings of illness and so on. One time a monk came to Ajahn Chah and said, I can't meditate because I'm ill. I've been ill for a long time. Ajahn Chah just scolding him, said, oh, this is the time you should be meditating more than any other time. It's your opportunity to see dukkha, dukkha vetana, see dukkha as a noble truth. That's how he encouraged us to practice. And we are the ones, you might say, the front line who are committed to really learning, putting the Buddhist teachings into practice. So really learning from dukkha, witnessing it, rather than always just reacting to it, running away from it. And again, this is the quality of a samana, one who looks witnesses dukkha and sees it as a noble truth, as dukkha. But the karmic result of that is peace of mind. You know, the detached awareness, the equanimity is, 
is what we're aiming for. It brings that peace, the clarity, <clears throat> ultimately the transcendence of suffering. Once you know suffering is suffering, then the mind is letting go. It's not grasping at it. So Lumpur Chawa was always encouraging us to use the vehicle of a samana, the life of a bhikkhu samana, to deepen our understanding of the the Buddha's words, the teachings, you know, to really, he, he used to say, you know, the Buddha is, lies within this body and mind, our own candors. The Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha lie within here. It's not out there on the page of the book or out there somewhere else. We have the chance to really use this lifestyle to learn through experience, to really know the Buddha you know these states of mind that are free from attachment, free from suffering through the efforts we put into the practice. To use the conventions, the you know, the conventions of the samana life, even if they are conventions, but to use them skillfully bring the mind to the point where our wisdom is functioning clearer so we can really see and know anicca dukkha anatta in our experience. Then maybe we can see through the conventions. And then the samana is internalized. We're no longer dependent on the external form, the robes, the requisites, the vinaya training and so on. It becomes internalized. We can't do that too quickly. Our tendency maybe is to want to experience freedom. So even sometimes under the influence of delusion, we mean freedom from the Vinaya, freedom from the Samana's life. And we get it wrong when we lose our right view. Really, we're using this vehicle to bring up knowledge of the way things are, again, using the Four Noble Truths, bring up mindfulness, and reflecting on where suffering comes, where it arises, having enough patience to see it through and see what all suffering arises, it also passes away. There's a feeling suffering is nothing to be grasped at, as permanent as a self, as who I am. It's just another feeling, another experience. It's what we add on with our mind to this body, to the world, to our life, you know, living with other people, living in the world, our hopes, our expectations. As long as we're not clear, then craving attachment keeps coming into our thinking. We lose our right view. If we keep coming back to the, the basic teachings that the Buddha gave, keep coming back to developing right view, we can see through it.
someone was mentioning the other day about you know, the way Lumpocha used just the ordinary monastic lifestyle, the form of the samana, the things we do just to always help us see the Dhamma, see the truth in any situation. Very good at just pointing out very ordinary things, ordinary situations, bring the mind back to the present moment and also cut through delusion, cut through craving. There was one time there was some Pariyati monks, scholar monks who were quite well known and passed a lot of exams, quite a, had a, a lot of knowledge of Pali and the scriptures. They came to see Lumpocha because they had faith in him. But like many scholar monks, tended to see the forest monks, the sort of the attractive thing in them was maybe the fact that they had samadhi and psychic powers, could read minds and perform miracles and things. Anyway, they sat down with Lumpocha, paid respects, and they were talking with him. And one of them asked if Lumpocha could explain craving, you know, the three types of craving, karma-dhanha, bhava-dhanha, vipava-dhanha. They weren't quite sure what to expect as an answer, whether he's going to answer them just in a sort of an eloquent way of explanation of the Pali and the meanings of the Pali terms, or he was going to perform some kind of psychic feat. They weren't quite sure. And Lumpocha was just sitting there at his normal seat, so he just picked up a toothwood and held it and said, Do you see this? I said, Yep. Yeah. Is this toothwood long or short? He asked, and they're not sure what to answer. At first they thought he was going to do some kind of miraculous feat, just using a toothwood, make it fly or disappear or whatever, like a magic trip maybe. They couldn't answer him, so they just said, well, if you have another piece of wood, say another toothwood or another piece of wood, and put it next to it, you might say, well, this toothwood is short. Or if you have a very short piece of wood, like a matchstick, you put it next to the toothwood, toothwood you might say the toothwood is large. In the end, the toothwood is just the toothwood. It's just what it is, a piece of wood. Craving is what our mind wants it to be. It wants it to be large, wants it to be small. When it's small, we might want it to be large, so we're not satisfied. When it's large, we might want it to be small, so we're not satisfied. Or we might get what we want, and we're satisfied for a while. But craving is what we want from things. In the end, wood is just wood. It's what our mind wants from it, is craving. And which I always pointed out, the real marvel or miracle of the Dhamma, rather the real abhinya is the ability to get people to see their own minds and see, penetrate through to the Four Noble Truths, to see craving is what causes attachment, is what causes suffering. And the marvel of the Dhamma, teaching the Dhamma, getting people to see this. You might say that's our real goal as samanas, 
to see it for ourselves first and then also to pass it on to others and to actually embody the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, the Four Noble Truths through our practice, actually training the mind to get to see craving as it arises, the stories, the moods, really see them for what they are, they are just moods, just mental states, just mental proliferation. The more we do witness things as they are, then the more there's that sense of release, relinquishment, letting go. The more the mind comes to peace, even with pain, painful feelings, experiences of suffering, unpleasant things. The more we establish right view with mindfulness, the more the mind can be at ease with these things, within these things. Obviously there's the ease of samadhi. When you develop samadhi, well you can even go beyond pain and pleasure. Experience deep states of equanimity and bliss. But more when we come out of samadhi, in a more normal state of mind, how are we going to treat these normal experiences of human beings, pleasure and pain, which come to us all the time? And do we have right view? And this really defines the samana. The samana is one who is established in right view, maintains the right view in all situations. They don't lose track of the the practice of sila and restraint. They don't lose practice of mindfulness and don't, don't lose track of the wisdom of the situation, seeing the impermanence, the dukkha, the lack of self in phenomena. Ultimately, this is our aim. This is what Lumpur Chao is encouraging us to do. Use this form to train this mind, to bring it to see the truth. So, we'll be off to Thailand tomorrow. I'll leave you these words for you to reflect on and just encourage you to keep up your practice. And we'll see you, we'll see you all when we get back if we get back.